Welcome to EPRI Unplugged, the podcast of the Electric Power Research Institute. I'm Amy Mills. In our last episode, we focused on electrification and EPRI's initiative to study the role of electrification, create a technology pipeline, and expand R&D collaborations. One area of research falling under that umbrella is indoor agriculture. You may have heard buzzwords such as vertical farming or hydroponics. You can even buy indoor farming kits on Amazon. But the idea of indoor agriculture has big implications. Indoor agriculture facilities have the potential to deliver fresh produce to local and regional communities, reducing transportation costs and emissions, and also reducing water usage. It also requires electricity, which is the focus of EPRI's research. Leading the effort is Frank Sharp, Senior Technical Leader for Energy Utilization. Frank, welcome. Well, thank you, Amy, and thank you for making some time today for uh, me to discuss one of the areas of research I have here at EPRI. Well, my pleasure. I'm really excited to talk about this one. I mentioned vertical farms, but there are several types of facilities. Can you talk about, you know, what types of indoor agriculture is out there and why? What is the appeal of this type of farming? Oh, sure, sure. Um, well, uh, there's a range of indoor agriculture going on in the U.S. in a range of different areas. We're probably all familiar with things like greenhouses and things that are used for indoor uh, production of flowers, so which is called floriculture. But Emory's research is really focused on um, the emerging areas of indoor agriculture, which are really the vertical farms, as you mentioned, or those are also sometimes called plant warehouses. Uh, we're also looking at shipping container-based farms, and uh, those are basically farms that fit within a standard intermodal shipping container. And I should add, the vertical farms or the custom warehouse or the plant farms are really facilities where um, you, you take an existing building or a new building and you create a microclimate just to grow crops or produce. And then we also look at a third area, which is the controlled greenhouse. And this is a traditional greenhouse that's augmented by the use of electric lighting and uh, also some um, some pumps and things, and basically uh, allows the greenhouse to be used in a wider span of applications. And we also look at a fourth area, which is really kind of aquaculture or indoor fish and shrimp production, or where there's a mix of vegetable and uh fish production. So think of something with lettuce maybe on a floating bed and uh, tilapia or something or, or, or growing beneath it. So really those are the areas of research that we look at. And the reason that those areas are interesting is um, we have an expanding world population. It's about 7.5 billion people on the surface of the earth today. But in the next 30 years, roughly, uh, the UN estimates there's going to be another 2 to 2.2 billion people. So we've got another 2 billion or plus mouths to feed, and we've already used about 80% of uh, arable or usable farmland in the world. So we have an increasing population. We don't have that much more land to expand into in terms of traditional farming. And much of populations today are moving to urban areas. So our farmland is getting a greater distance from where our populations are. So indoor agriculture allows us to produce and yield crops closer to the point of consumption, which also helps with things related to fossil fuel use so we don't have food miles or logistics where you're moving a crop a great distance from the field to the point of sale or the point of consumption. Indoor agriculture also offers uh, large water savings, uh, usually between 70 
and 90% water savings depending on the type of uh, facility as well as the crop being grown. So there's variance in, 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 in those. And also the fact that we don't use diesel-based or traditional farming technologies, um, you, you're not using fossil fuels for crop tending, uh, but also we're not using as many pesticides or herbicides, if not eliminate them entirely, because these are microclimate or controlled environments. There's reduced uh, need for pesticides and herbicides. And this, of course, so by the combination of less water use and less herbicide and pesticide use, we have less wastewater issues. And the wastewater we do produce doesn't have as many nutrients in it. So we, there's just a general greening of this society or of this industry where we, we're just more compatible with less environmental output, better control of the environment, higher crop yields, these kind of things. And I will say, looking at some of the pictures, just stacks and stacks and stacks of plants. And oftentimes, it's spinach, it's greenery. Let's talk about the types of crops, because I imagine you're not growing stocks of corn in these indoor ag farms. But what can you grow? What, what makes sense in that environment? That's a, a, a great question. And, and now, things like corn and rice and wheat can be grown indoors. But economically, there's no reason to. The real focus for indoor agriculture, indoor food production, is short shelf life, high-value crops. So think of those as herbs, leafy greens, uh, things like tomatoes uh, or other vine crops, strawberries, these kind of things, where basically we benefit by getting that crop from the point of uh, the farm to the consumer very quickly. By, in, by increasing the shelf life, we get it there quicker. We don't have as much of a uh, – we, we have a longer ability to sell it, but also we have – we don't have to store it. And so that the real you know, crops that are going to be grown outside traditionally for an extended period of time, corn, rice, wheat, these staples, these don't have a lot of value per pound and they can be then they can be stored a long time. But so indoor ag really focuses solely on those crops that are able to be grown quickly indoors and then sold quickly where the consumer benefits from a from a fresher vegetable that's closer to the point of uh, consumption. What are some of the, the challenges and opportunities more broadly? Well, um, there's, you know, from a challenges perspective, because you're using uh, electrical power and you're having to put a lot of, uh, of, of electric lights and uh, pumps and thermal control systems, uh, it's a relatively expensive business to start. So it's a, it's a startup business, and so it's high, it's high cost. So Typically, it takes a long time for uh, the farms to become well, relatively long time for the farms to become profitable. Uh, five to seven years is not uncommon, but it could take longer. Um, but the other challenges are most food distribution contracts are already in place. So these farms that are producing crops indoors have to get into the traditional food distribution market space. And so many times you'll find them actually selling their crops directly to a restaurant, directly to a local uh, grocery store, selling them at a food, at a, you know, at a, at a farmer's market, these kind of things. So that's another challenge they can run into is just getting into the marketplace. And of course, there's also the consumer itself is having to get used to the fact that their plants are being grown inside of a warehouse or inside of a shipping container. Uh, and they're not out outdoors, and they're not. So the consumer itself has to – there's some educational opportunities there. But from opportunities, again, it's, I'm getting the fresher produce, large water savings, regardless of where we are in the world today, water is a discussion topic. So this, so this industry is really focused on being sustainable and renewable, 
less water use um, and basically being able to use less herbicides, less pesticides, produce that fresher crop that is where the consumer is getting it closer to the source and uh, is benefiting from uh, local jobs being created, reuse of uh, buildings, these kind of things. So Epri's research is really focused on understanding the impact of this industry on the grid from an electrical perspective, but also from the water impact, the water energy nexus we talk about a lot also wastewater and also just general sustainability. So we're not looking at this solely from electrical power. We're looking at this as a total impact on society, total impact on the grid, community impact, these kind of things. A lot of different avenues, and that 70 to 90 percent water savings is really an astounding figure. Yes, absolutely. And again, that variance is due to crop and also the type of the facility. So growing a tomato indoors has a different percentage of water savings than, say, growing lettuce, and it does vary if someone's using a shipping container versus a, a, a augmented or a controlled greenhouse. Well, you mentioned the grid. I do want to talk about the electricity factor. And I saw in looking through your research a really interesting statistic about the amount of electricity. So what do we need to be considering when we're talking about that much electricity suddenly coming on the grid? Because these are large industrial-scale loads coming online, uh, the utility really should engage early on with these facilities to, in terms of um, facility siting and opportunities to maybe use existing infrastructures where uh, a large warehouse or a manufacturing facility has left the service territory and that space can be reused, but also some potential opportunities maybe for uh, siting them near facilities that could provide um, something beneficially like a waste CO2. Uh, all these facilities, they want a higher CO2 level to create that microclimate. So partnering with a nearby facility that can provide some or all of the CO2 needs for uh, these facilities is a key area. So just in general, uh, you have an emerging load here that's industrial scale that the utility um, needs to be aware of, but also not just in terms of um, electrical use, but impact on the grid related to substations, existing infrastructure, uh, new infrastructure that may need to be deployed. As I already mentioned, this is a startup business, so the utility should also be aware of how to handle those costs and should there be a partnership with the farm, should there be some kind of uh, special um, dispensation related to the substation, these kind of things. So the utilities itself, really, there's a lot of discussion here, and if the utility is also engaging with local communities and water boards and these things, there's even more reasons to be discussing early and often uh, the uh, full societal and community impact of these uh, operations. Speaking of utilities, what is your advice to those that are working with indoor farms in their territories or think that they may be in the future? Well, they, I think they definitely need to be thinking, Amy, about, again, um, the impact on the grid long term. As these facilities expand, and there's probably less than 50 vertical farms in the U.S. today, but there's um, there's going to be a large number of them coming online in the coming years. But also, you think of the shipping containers themselves individually are not large loads, maybe 100 to 150 kWh a day, or approximately four residential home loads is what we, we typically have seen. But those are typically grouped, so you might, you don't have one. You have eight or ten or maybe 20 of these in one area. So that cumulatively becomes a very noticeable load. Uh, the augmented greenhouse, um, these, are, these loads vary daily because since they use natural sunlight to provide some or all of the lighting they need some days, and they only turn the electrical lights on when the sun is down, so if it's you know, early in the morning and the afternoon, 
or on overcast days or when the days are short during certain seasons. So those loads are not as predictable as the vertical farm or the pod farms. That's another thing the utility needs to be able to work with these facilities to really understand the load profile, to really understand when these facilities are going to be peaking. And another thing with vertical farms and the container farms, since they're self-contained, they can also be operated off peak hours. So it's an opportunity for the utility maybe to uh, uh, have these facilities run during hours when the when the loads on the grid are lower and uh, maybe operated and at times it's beneficial for the utility to keep certain generation assets online and not idle them. So there are some opportunities here the utility has for maybe some load shifting. Um, if properly scheduled, maybe some load um, some demand response in certain cases, but again, that would have to be very scheduled and it would have to be very, um, it would have to be planned. But then again, there's lots of opportunities for the utility to really talk to these facilities, work with them, um, and also do business division, business introductions. Again, as I alluded to, one of the challenges can be uh, getting into the food distribution space. So introducing uh, the farm to local food distributors or introducing them to local restaurants that may be interested in this farm to table. Uh, close to source. That's one of the biggest drivers of this industry is that farm-to-table model. Um, you know, production that's local, consumption that's local. Um, and because th these farms are producing produce, that does cost more in many cases than field-grown produce because it's uh, electrical-based. You, you know, it's, the key is to focus on markets that are willing to pay a higher cost for that fresher, closer to source produce that has some other uh, maybe benefits or closer demand for the consumer. Well, and interesting that you mentioned how the utilities role can be helping to make those connections. That not that's not something you would maybe traditionally associate with the utility, but it makes sense. They know those other customers in the market and can help make those connections. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, again, it's not really the utility's role to incentivize this industry, but to just make it uh, where there's more, uh, increase the opportunity for it to um, expand or maybe be sided within their utility. And that's, again, just using existing relationships and saying uh, this is this is an opportunity and maybe there's an opportunity for other businesses to partner. So, again, it's not the utility actively engaging in the business of indoor agriculture as much as it is being a good partner with indoor agriculture, as they would with any large load coming to their uh, service territory. We talked about the United States specifically, but this is a worldwide industry. What are you seeing in other countries that maybe the U.S. market can learn from? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you have island nations like Japan and Singapore that are very focused on um, indoor farming. Uh, Japan lost a good percentage of their uh, arable farmland after Fukushima, so they have already have um, hundreds of these vertical farms in Japan operating today producing uh, crops for their uh, country. And, again, that goes back to the food security and food safety kind of questions, and that's just being able to feed your um, – population if natural disasters happen, and that's one of the things I, I failed to mention earlier, and that's one of the opportunities for the indoor ag because it is a self-contained environment. If you have a um, bad season, less rain, more rain, too hot, too dry, and the field crops don't come in, or for some reason there's a natural disaster in general, um, indoor agriculture has the opportunity to continue to yield crops year-round um, regardless of outdoor conditions, and to that really allows um, nations but also communities to have a uh, 
have a have a food security and like food safety comes more into the question since these are controlled environments if there's um and they don't use a lot of herbicides and pesticides and they control the environment most of the employees coming in and out are uh, they're in um kind of bunny suits and they work in gloves and and they're very cautious of of uh of no human born disease coming in and out or reducing it as much as possible so this allows food to have a little more um security and and maybe reduce the risk of uh of disease and also island nations like Singapore which depend on almost exclusively on food being imported you're beginning to see more and more vertical farms or indoor agriculture in those places and then you have small nations um like the Netherlands, which is the second largest exporter of food in the world behind the U.S. It's a very small nation, you know, kind of a postage-sized country, postage stamp-sized country, but they grow almost all of their produce indoors inside of uh, augmented or controlled environment greenhouses. And because of that, they actually produce an abundance of uh, crops that they're able to export outside their borders. So those are really the uh, the other nations are really already moving ahead in this space, and uh, North America is kind of – uh, because we don't usually struggle with uh, access to food has not been as uh, driven in the in the past years, but because of the water savings we're talking about and the food safety improvements and the reduced logistics, again, reducing the use of fossil fuels and logistics and crop tending, uh, these are all reasons that people are beginning to uh, look at indoor ag even in North America. As this industry grows in North America, there are a number of startup companies working in the area. There's a couple of engaged with through our Incubate Energy Network, which connects energy entrepreneurs around the world. How are entrepreneurs playing in this space, and how could or should utilities engage with them? Well, again, that's a great question, Amy. And we've seen some large investors already come into this space and make large uh you know, $100 million investments. But for the most part, most of these are still startup businesses that are still trying to uh, to get their feet underneath them. And so uh, banks and um, and entrepreneurs themselves are kind of uh, – have been hesitant up to now, but they're beginning to begin to see the opportunities in this and invest. Uh, but, again, these uh, air, these investors and have to be looking multiple years down the road for uh, payback. It's not a short-term payback at this time. And utilities, again, can kind of take the role of uh, helping a farm or or a farm concept come to their community by looking at maybe ways to partner with communities, uh, maybe ways to, again, help with siting, help the farm um, get established in the community by introducing, again, business to business, and uh, also doing some just general things around they partnering with some vocational schools or a community to provide some training because average farmer in the U.S. is uh, is uh, is over 55 now, and there's not a lot of young people coming into farming. So this is a skill set that is not that's not re- regenerating itself. So um, there, these are there's some opportunities here for the utilities maybe to uh, partner with some training dollars or some training assets and some literature and, again, community, bringing in community colleges or vocational schools for training. And as you continue the research on indoor agriculture, what do you think is going to happen in the next five to ten years, if you could make a prediction? Well, I think this industry is definitely going to expand. Uh, the rate of, of current expansion has been pretty high. It's really hard to put a number on the future. Clearly, as populations expand and the demand by the consumer to have fresher, closer to consumption produce, is something that is uh, that is continuing to expand, and people are really beginning to think about 
food safety and food security and just um, the, the quality of uh, vegetables in themselves that they're buying at the local store, uh, these are all things that uh, are going to make the indoor ag industry more um, relevant. And again, when we think about the water savings, uh, communities that are already water constrained, this works well into being able to use minimal amounts of water to produce regular and right uh, crops. And I should have added, by cropping indoors, you almost guarantee that you're going to get regular and like routine crops. So you can set your farm up where you're, you're yielding a certain amount of uh, produce every week reliably and dependably, so it becomes a uh, dependable means of providing local uh, food. It'll be interesting to see how this industry develops in, in North America. Frank, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Amy, and thank you for all the listeners. And we uh, just appreciate y'all's time and also the uh, interest we've had in this uh, particular area of uh, research in the last few years. We have more information on EPRI's research available on our website. Visit EPRI.com and search for Indoor Agriculture. The website also has more information on our efficient electrification research, including a link to sign up for EPRI's efficient electrification newsletter. And until next time, we're shaping the future of electricity.